This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links. Welcome to the Tome Book Club. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. I'm Eric Pocket, and in each book club episode, we're in dis- we discuss one D&D-related books, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book in this around is Death Mass by Ed Greenwood. Tracy is away for this uh, one more episode, we're told, and sh- as she's acclimating to life with a new child. Uh, if you'd like to reach out and let her know that she's been missed, her email is at sarahdarkmagic. Now, on to the book of this month. Death masks. Ah, but that'll happen right after we mention our awesome sponsor, Noble Knight, an online brick-and-mortar game store that specializes in finding out-of-print products for gamers. Our pick of this episode this time around is the Elminster of Shatterdale Mini, produced by Wizards of the Coast in 2005. Uh, And it is now well out of print and hard to find. It's listed as being a rare mini and available for Noble Knight right now for $20. So go check them out and let them know that the Tome Show sent you. Looking at pictures online of it, it's a very nice mini. Yeah, it does. It looks cool. And it's one of their uh, pre-painted plastics, right? So you don't even have to go through the hassle of painting it. I almost went, they have another one, a Gale Force 9 mini that's not out of print. Um, So I wanted to highlight what they can get the out of print stuff. And that one's not the pre-painted one. Uh, which looks cool, but I don't paint. So having something pre-painted, that's a win for me. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers. Use a Noble Knight. To sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com. The brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. Just trying to sound creepy there. All right, so we are back, and we are talking about um, Death Masks by Ed Greenwood. It's just the two of us. It's going to be a small little quaint conversation about how awesome this book is according to me and how horrible it is according to you, right? I found it hard to get into it. Okay. Explore the basically away from the blurb. And I expected more of a mystery style, a bit like Spellstorm. We got more what I find was a more of a political intrigue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean uh, Greenwood seems to be on this this run of um, telling Elminster stories that feel like. Homages to like old classic. It's not really pulp stories, though, right? It's it's it's. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like he's doing like murder she wrote episodes as Elminster stories. You know, he's trying different styles and he's trying to expand out rather than doing the adventurous. Right, but they're all sort of different styles from this same sort of time period and genre. I feel like. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, I wasn't sure if, any, if that was just me or if that was something actually going on. Because he did the big adventure where they, they you know, they crashed, uh, what is it, the, the floating city in, 
<clears throat> defeated, you know, uh, or at least for the time being, defeated the, the Nethery's uh, Shade Enclave and crashed it into Mithranor and um, great magics were being thrown about and, and things were crazy. And then after that, he went. He seemed to be going to much smaller, more... Um, personal. Uh, I don't even know that they're more personal, like, to the characters, spells. but they're smaller stories. They're more focused. Well, spells, yeah. Because Harold was big and major because that was the war that was happening. Mm-hmm. Then Spellstorm was a more personal murder mystery. Only a few, s- several characters clueish style and uh, now we're a bit bigger than 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 spellstorm that's mm-hmm. where you are in water deep and basically what's on the line is basically who rules in the end well, who, who rules water deep which is always kind of on the line anyway right yeah water deep is uh, if you get into that element of water deep it has all it has always had all kinds of uh, intrigue which happens when you have a, a governing body that is made up of a secretive masked lords who you know don't even have their their uh, identity known by the majority of people. Which that's one of the things. So like when people were reading the book, I was like, "Wait a minute! It feels like lots of people already know who these people are from the way it's presented." So I'm like, "Are they really hidden? Are they really?" Yeah, they were, or these masks just ceremonial and people know? Yeah, That's, I mean, I think the general understanding is that, like, um, any given mass lord might be known by a few people. Um, but for the general populace, most of the general populace has no idea who any of the mass lords are outside of the, the open lord, who's the only one who, who whose identity is obvious. Yeah. So. But there were an awful lot of people who seemed to know what, what was going on and who the Mass Lords were. Although, there must have been a lot that, you know, I didn't, didn't get the impression that a lot of people knew who all of the Mass Lords were. Um, because they seemed to be very easily fooled fairly often with by Elminster and other people sort of walking around pretending to be Mass Lords and other people just yeah. sort of completely accepting that. Well, that must be a Mass Lord. Yeah. I mean, you, you do get some people that are like, oh, it must be a new mass lord or oh, a mass lord or, or something like that. And because I'm, I'm like, okay. So he's, it seems to be really easy for someone who pretends to be a mass lord as demonstrated with Elminster and Mordenkrain. I mean, Morden- really, really easy if you're able to get a handle on the, the proper vestments, right? If you, have, if you get the actual helmet and, and attire of a mass lord, um, then it's really easy to impersonate them, but it's supposed to be very difficult to get them unless you're, you know, a chosen Amistra named Elminster, who yeah. knows all the secrets and, and hidden ways uh, in and out of the palace. He's very good friends with the current Open Lord. <laughs> right. So let, let's talk about the story generally. Uh, what, what, do you, what do we feel like this story was about? And it's worth so- noting... For listeners, and I don't know if I even told you this, we are going to have an interview with Ed Greenwood about the book uh, that'll appear later in the episode. So, so look out for that. And if you have questions, make sure I let them. You let me know so I can uh, pose them to him. Boy, uh, so ba- yeah, Austin was pulling the creed where there is uh, mass lords that are being found dead and repeatedly throughout the story mm-hmm. and it has been done by Tashin, I believe that's how she yeah. 
pronounce? Tasheen. Mm-hmm. Tasheen, who basically is murdering. Although later on we learn that she is um, murdering them on the orders of another mass board, who basically is trying to take over and undermine uh, Laryl. Laryl. Laryl, who is the the Open Lord, and a and a chosen Amistra. And former wife, formerly the wife of Kelvin Blackstaff, who used to be the Archmage of um, Waterdeep before he died. Which was way back before the spell plague or any of that. Yeah. Just a little background lore there. Uh, I I gathered that from just reading the book. Right. Because the book assumes a lot for the characters. Yeah. Yeah, We're we're skipping a little bit ahead because we haven't finished talking about what the story is. But yeah, you're right. I found that this book really assumed a level of familiarity or comfort anyway with a lot of lore. Yeah, which I believe is one of the reasons why I had issues about it. Sure. So, but yeah, so basically that's the overall threat of them as uh, this this mass lord who, from what I gathered, was a member of the guilds trying to place people he wants to be in power. Right. People that he thinks he can control or manipulate so that he can basically do whatever he wants on, yeah. on the Council of Mass Lords. So and basically rule Waterdeep. But there was uh, also this manipulation going on. Um, I mean, like the Xanathar, uh, which is this like... Waterdeep has had a Xanathar for a long time, and it's like a series of beholder, like mobsters, crime lords that live underneath Waterdeep. Yeah. And then um, there was a mind flayer involved as well that was manipulating things. Things. And at one, po- and at one point, uh, a storm giant thing. Yeah, yeah. What's up? One of the things that, that actually I, well, I was really impressed with in this book is how much Greenwood embraced the shared world concept in a way that I haven't seen in a Realms book possibly ever. Like this book referenced the Tyranny of Dragons regularly. It references um, um, Storm King's Thunder pretty heavily. It references the, the, uh, the Rage of Demons storyline as well. Um, yeah. uh, but and and Storm King's Thunder like outright appears like there is a floating city of cloud giants that pop up and they have to deal with that for a while. In fact, if my if I have any disappointment, it's that that wasn't a bigger part of the story because it was really interesting and then sort of like okay, well, do your thing, bye, and then you never yeah. heard from it again. You know? Yeah, there was lots of cameo appearances of mm-hmm. the various major storylines, and you just hear oh that way you're like you're stopping and like oh this is what happened in the realms. Well, and there and there were more cameos, more uh, appearances as well that that continued to make it feel like it was part of this larger world, because um, uh, Mordenkainen is running around in Waterdeep, and Elminster, you know, is chasing him down and dealing with him every now and then. Mordenkainen being the famous uh, Greyhawk yes. wizard, who through Dragon Magazine used to like pop in and have conversations in the in the text. Um, yeah. With Elminster, and uh, all of that is officially canon. So, Mordenkainen oh, yeah. and Elminster do know each other and do hop around the worlds and talk to each other every now and then. It just so happened that he he was around, running around Waterdeep in the palace during this event, um, and so he pops up a, a bunch of times too. Yeah, I remember reading the articles in Dragon where uh, Elminster, Mordenkainen, and Dalimar from Dragonlands are basically uh-huh. 
hanging hanging around at El Minzer's place. I'm not. Oh, no, at Ed Greenwood's place. At Ed Greenwood's place, having coffee or tea uh-huh. and all that, making jokes, making comments and stuff like that. And all of that is technically and officially canon. So. Yeah. Um, you know, the actual Earth that we live in is part of the D&D universe and Elminster and Mordenkainen and Dalimar have regularly visited there to converse and hang out. Which, and they know Ed Greenwood. And they know Ed Greenwood, right. Uh, there was another interesting cameo um, amongst the Masked Lords. Did you notice it? I don't think I noticed it. One of the mass lords who actually has a he he's, he's named like two or three times and and says something once but not you know is not a major player in the machinations of the mass lords okay. is named Omen Dran, which to- says nothing to me. Omen Dran is one of the characters from Acquisitions Incorporated, the okay. the penny arcade PvP uh, play that they do at PAX East. And, okay. at, and at one point in their play sessions from PAX, or not PAX East, from, well, from the PAXs, uh, one of their, their sessions um, actually dealt with um, oh, that character being a, a mass lord for a while. Okay. So Ed has now taken Acquisitions Incorporated, and at least that part of it, he's made it canon as well. That, that is cool. Yeah. So like, he really like, is, yeah. is keeping up with all the stuff going on in his world and like owning it and using it and let me, throwing in these little Easter eggs. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's fun for a fan and someone who knows about the stuff. Like, I, I enjoy Morning Canyon because I'm also I'm, – I like it. I like Greyhawk. Yeah. So, see, no – what did guy just showed up? Yay! He was like, he seems to be having some, some uh, mental issues, but which and I kind of wondered if that wasn't a reference to Ravenloft, because Mordenkainen yeah. is spoiler alert. Mordenkainen is in the Curse of Strahd adventure as well, uh, and, but he's at first only just known as the Mad Mage because he'd gone crazy. Crazy. So, so I didn't I didn't know if that was a kind of a, a, a sideways yeah. allusion to that storyline also. That, that could possibly be be it, since he was making links to all sorts of uh, adventures and yeah, all that. So maybe he eventually got out of Ravenloft, and this is where he popped up, and he just hasn't gone home yet. So he's still a little loopy. So, yeah. No. I mean, those elements I like and all that. And I enjoyed reading the, 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 the scenes with Elminster and his wit with, with certain Indian characters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm book he was was fun was whimsical and right and you were saying that that the larger story is they were um this one mass lord is manipulating things to try to take over and then elminster and laryl have sort of been trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and who's responsible and he's um the mass lord is manipulating different wizards in the and in, in the watch and they they disappear the the watch captain at one point and so we i guess did we ever find out what happened to him I don't remember if they, we do. We I, do find out. I just sort of assumed he's dead somewhere, lying yeah, in a ditch. Because there's <laughs> lots of people who died. Right. Throughout. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed that you get cameos from um, Dove and Siluni, two of the the seven sisters and Chosen Amistra who have died but continues on as sort of uh, weave ghosts. Um, I thought their their roles were were interesting, and I kind of wanted more of them. Um, and then Elminster is on his end. Um, 
he has hired his uh, couple, a pair of adventurers and is sort of getting them involved in his machinations. Meanwhile, uh, Merch is still running around and, and helping out. Uh, and part of his helping out is that he's hired um, a series of, what are they called? Uh, um, what, what's the name they give for him? I don't remember. In, anyway, they're, they're basically three prostitutes, right? Yeah. Um, and he's got them sort of out there spying for him and doing all kinds of stuff. And so you've got this real tangled web of, of manipulations of, of people either trying to suss out what's going on and other people trying to you know continue murdering and manipulating mass lords without getting caught. Yeah. Which is one of the things. I mean, at the end, uh, Tasheen basically goes to Laryl to say, look, I'm the one who's was been murdering people, but by the order of so-and-so, and I'm telling you now because he wants to kill me now. Yeah. Which I'm like, so, so uh, sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I felt rather deprotagonized or, or main characters who were trying to figure that out. So I'm like, okay, they're the solution or the, that they've been looking for. Because throughout the story, Laurel and Elminster and, and Mert are trying to figure out who is doing that. So they're, they're, they're playing the murder mystery game uh-huh. while really the, the the reader is just reading this and they know this is a political intrigue yeah so did you find you know, did you find it anticlimactic then that she just came comes along and confesses and tells them the whole story when they've been trying to figure it out on their own this whole time yeah basically it's like okay they, it basically remove their ability to for them to as any works of fiction, any protagonist, oh, they're the one who figure out what, what happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, instead he was like, here you go, here's a solution. It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know that that threw me off, but there was, a, there was a moment of a couple of chapters where things happened and changed so quickly and, and in a way that like I, I got to the end and I'm like, wait, did, did that happen? Like did that character just get crushed by that falling building and die because that's kind of anticlimactic to me this is a character who's been around and survived in the realms and in through novels for hundreds of years and to basically be killed by this mage that we were just introduced to not even in this book but like halfway through this book um felt a little anticlimactic now they sort of undid that death right yeah but, that's uh, why it was was it Laryl or was it Elminster? Yeah, and, I, and I'm still not sure on that at times either. I like I listened to those two chapters and t- up to the point that um, they that they were like projecting their spirit out as a weave wraith or whatever to try to scare <laughs> off whoever was attacking them. Um, and then I realized, wait a minute, I'm not sure I'm following along with what's going on. And so I rewound the audiobook like two or three chapters and re-listened to the whole thing over again. Um, to see if, if what was going on was actually what was going on. Uh, and it was. I just didn't follow along to how they got there. And, and there's a moment where I'm – like I think the body that was crushed and destroyed under the, the collapsing building was actually Laryl. Okay. Um, and then Laryl's spirit – entered the fake Laryl body that Elminster had created for himself to use to, as part of his manipulations. He was he was posing as Laryl. Yeah. Um, and so Laryl's spirit sort of entered that body and they shared the body, but he let Laryl be sort of in charge. Yeah. Um, 
and that's sort of where Lariel lives now. And then, um, what was it? They, they, one of the villains or whatever. They at the end, they they hollowed out basically, and and let Elminster take over that body. Am yeah. I am I remembering that right? That that's why I was always, so. That's why I, I was actually thinking more that it was Elminster in the Lariel form got crushed. Then Laryl, she's the one that shows up to face Kozar. Yeah, but there was this. There was this whole. There's this whole conversation uh, when Laryl goes into the body that um, when El created it, they he didn't quite get it all right. Like it didn't. She, she from her perspective, it didn't look as much like her. You know, he made her. He made her more beautiful than she was now, and like you know, like uh, she appeared you know a hundred years ago, but not the way she is now. And so she changed the body a little bit when she first entered it in order to to make it fit her image of herself a little bit more. Uh, so that's why I think it was actually her that was killed, um, and Elle's body that she took over. So that, but you know, oddly enough, we we have the chosen mystery, which have just developed this ability to hop bodies around. I guess. So. One thing I also did notice that they, they mentioned the fact of the changes and magic, you know, like the fact of they can't just read minds as easily as. Anymore. Yeah, that and that was something that came out through the the Herald and some of those things, right? Or when Mystery came back through the through Greenwood's book books, they used to run around like um, what would they call it, mind reaming people all the time, just just forcibly entering people's minds and figuring out what they were doing, uh, and that it felt to me like uh, Greenwood was using the opportunity of the Sundering to kind of change some of the rules, so that wasn't a thing that was happening very often. Because it's hard to tell a mystery if the chosen can just run around and read everybody's mind all the time, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I, th- I felt like that was a change to the rules of magic for the chosen that um, that was made for plot reasons. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. But well, yeah, I, that, that change I found was interesting. Mm-hmm. Point, pointed out, I was like, oh, okay, well, change of rules, new new system, and. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, although I did find that, like, this book is clearly not written to be a jumping-on point for people, I don't think. Like, if you're not already familiar with, with the realms and Elminster, you're going to miss some things. But even if you're, like, not a and d person, like, they're tossing around spells, and he just describes them as, yeah, then I get hit by a meteor swarm, and then there was a force cage, and they don't explain what any of those things are. Um, so they are assuming that it's a and d player reading this. Yes. Um, because otherwise you have no idea what, what these spells are. Yeah. Oh, like I said, for the, knowing D&D, I knew what those spells were and all that, but yes, also, but yeah, if you need to be familiar with the uh, Elminster books, the Forgotten Realms, and knowing who these characters mm. are to be able yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose maybe you could read it without knowing a lot of the lore, but I think you're going to get a lot more out of it because he worked so hard to to put in the these this whole shared world concept, right? Um, and he can't introduce you to to uh, you know Laryl every single time she appears in a book because she appears in books all the time. So there's just sort of an assumption that you you're keeping up, you know. Yeah, I was a little disappointed that. Um, uh, was it Amaroon and Arklath, who we've been been introduced as sort of 
the the heir apparent of of Elminster. Yeah. Um, in and the, in the previous two books, like yeah, they weren't in this book. Like they were mentioned once. Oh yeah, they're off doing that stuff in Cormier, whatever. And then, they, or I think it was Cormier or whatever. But they're off in the Heartlands or something. So you know, moving on. Yeah. I was amused by the fact that Volo got introduced and he's now a chosen Amistra. Is that something new, or was he always chosen Amistra? Yeah, that was so. I do have a little bit of issue um, with that. Not with with Volo being a chosen Amistra, although it's a little weird because he's never been that kind of a character, I guess. Um, okay. He's always been the the adventurous, like going. He, he's he's the scholar, but he's not like the professional scholar you know he's the amateur scholar um who's out in the world and seeing all the things that in a world like the forgotten realms not everybody's seeing and so i guess that does make him an expert um but he's not a studier he's an out there he's gonna go out there and see things kind of guy um but what bothers me about it primarily is i don't know that the stakes of the spell plague and the sundering meant anything to any of Ed Greenwood's characters because all of them survived including the the relatively uh relatively minor ones right i mean i can buy like we found a way to make elminster live he's lived for hundreds of years anyway then not a huge deal uh yeah. and and it was a little corny to me when they brought back mert oh he just happened to be trapped in this item you know that's convenient moving on yeah, but they mentioned in the book for Elminster that he's a thousand years old. Right. So. Yeah, and, and so I can buy the chosen because they live a long time, yeah. but Mert coming back was a little bit off to me, and now Volo coming back is like really Volo's is, is at best like he's a well-known character, but in terms of appearing in fiction and being a big deal uh, in terms of stories, I don't know. He, he's I don't know that he's ever been a big deal i can't think of a story that i've read that volo even appeared in and now all of a sudden he's back in the realms largely uh by deus ex machina right because ed greenwood said he wanted all of his characters to be back and 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 so now the realms even though it has jumped forward through through two massive disasters and over a century uh but all of ed greenwood's characters are still there and whole (laughs) so i mean with the exception of the the one uh, chosen who died and is now a force, or uh, not a force ghost, force, it's like a force ghost, a weave ghost, right? Yeah. Yeah, you probably would have been better if, like, Volo was just the inherited name to a new character that was a descendant of the original yeah, Volo. Yeah, that would have been all right. Or, some, or it's just somebody playing at being Volo, and so we, yeah. he, they end up just being treated as Volo or something. It just, it seems like much. Like, every single, I can't think of a, of a major Ed Greenwood character that hasn't been brought back in some way, shape, or form, except maybe... Um, the one, I don't, I don't remember her name, who was the focus of Elminster's daughter. Okay. Um, but I feel like, she, while she didn't come back, her her role in the story came back through Amaroon. Like, the story of Amaroon sort of being the, the mentor and, you know, but at the same time, the silk shadow, you know, thief kind of character... That was kind of totally Elminster's daughter. Like that was yeah. her. That was her role also. And then you know the spell plague and, and and all that happened. And so Ed just sort of created a new character since that one never got really thoroughly introduced. Oh, let's just make somebody else and do the same story. Um, oh, yeah. Well, so, from, yeah. From, from from in the the narrative in the Forgotten Realms, what I, I, I sort of get the impression that Volo became a chosen Mistra because he amuses Mistra in some way. Yeah. She likes 
and oh, she wants to keep him around. That and that's weird to me too. That a god would just keep make somebody immortal because it's entertaining to them. Like so, screw you, Mister. You don't think I'm good enough to to live forever too? You know <laughs> that, she, know. that oh. she would pick and choose that way. Not even somebody who's necessarily pushing her agenda or working she, for her. St- there's always been stories of big powerful creatures that exist that do stuff on a whim because it amuses them. I mean. Most famous of stories are all of the f- stories of involving the Fae, where they sure, capture. But, but those, are, those are like eclectic, capricious uh, yeah. beings, where, whereas Mistra is supposed to be a little more thoughtful than that. I mean, she used to be mortal, and that was kind of a big deal because now you had a mortal who understood what it was like to be mortal, um, who's, who's in the role of a god. Yeah. Um, but. Apparently now she's just a capricious, uh, you know, fae, huh? Because <laughs> she could. Who, who just keeps Volo alive because she wants to keep Volo alive. I'm going to have to ask Ed about this whole Volo thing. But, uh, now that's a, que- a question. How many chosen does she have that we know of? Um, so there's the seven sisters. Or the, but... Some of them are, are as weave ghosts, so do these still count as chosen? I mean, they're still running around, and they're still manipulating the weave. I'd, I'd count them. Okay. Um, so there's the Seven Sisters, there's Elminster, um, there's Volo now. Yeah. Um, I don't know if in the in the post-sundering, post-spell plague era, there is a Magister anymore. Um, that was always like a title that was carried on from from wizard to wizard to be sort of be Mr.'s representative on, on Faroon. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I don't know. And, and, uh, you know, Kel- Kelvin's gone. Um, and Van, Van, Vangardast is around ish. <laughs> and I don't know if he was ever chosen or just a powerful wizard and former apprentice to Elminster. So, and isn't uh, the villain? What's his name? Zolvin's uh, or Manchun. Manchun does doesn't he have something for for Mistra? Yeah, I kind of recall him in that book claiming to be a chosen Mistra, uh, but he's and, also a notorious um, liar and evil person. Well, <laughs> so who knows? That, I, don't, but, I don't know if I bought it. But in that book, Mistra contacts Elminster that she wants to get him. For her, for him to get something from Manchun because he's one of her chosen, or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess what I only I, have vague recollections of of that, but I do, I do remember that being a thing. Yeah, so that's why I was like, one of the things I was wondering is because is the reason why Volo is a chosen of Mistra is alive is because Mistra needs a certain number of chosen that are alive. Right. Well, and, and, and some of that was has been for a long time, not only to help protect and maintain the weave and all that, um, but there was there's also an element of um, we've gone through this before, and what happens if if you know there's another you know um, another major celestial event, you know? Yeah. Um, 
another sun's rain, another time of troubles, another yeah, that kind of stuff. And so, and yeah. so, and so, uh, magic is too important to just have it be destroyed again, like it was the first time Mistra died. So some of of the the deity's power sort of spread out into these chosen. So that way, if something happens, then then she lives. So I see. I'm looking at at the. Um, Forgotten Realms Wikia page, uh, which is usually a good source of information. Um, they list one, two, three, four, five, six, seven currently active um, known chosen, uh, as and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dis- known confirmed dead chosen. Um, but that but that includes Seluni. Um, but Dove is dead, isn't she? Dove was one of the ghosts in in this. Yeah, it was Dove was. and Saluni, and so this is a little out of date, um, yeah. because they're listing Dove as a a known and not a deceased. Yeah. Um, but Manshun is listed as a known chosen. Yeah. So. And they don't. And they and they don't list Volo, which is. And they don't list Volo, so yeah, it's obviously a little bit out of date. Because Volo is just introduced right now. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. So, so now we've gone all around this to- <laughs> this topic in this book, right? Yeah, uh, we've we've got quite the tangled web web of discussion about this book, which I feel is appropriate because it's quite a tangled web of a story. Like, um, I felt like there was one or two too many uh, points of view in this book. Like, if if they had kept the story focused on on one or two less points of view, I would have had an easier time following what was going on. Because there, even in the, in the plot, there is the uh, while the murders are happening. I mean, we didn't really know while the main knows there are some people who are taking that as an opportunity to try to put in as masked lords, suggest names for folks they don't like, in the hopes that the murderer will kill them, and thus they can eliminate enemies that way. Hmm. So I was like, okay. Yeah, this is, is a very convoluted web of plot of various groups manipulating stuff. It's pretty much a political intrigue. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, the whole too many points of view issue that I have with this book is, is more and more common um, in a lot of, um, not just, just realms fiction, although I'm seeing it in a lot of realms fiction. Um, I don't know. I feel like most of the time I... I I have an easier time with books if I can follow just just a couple of characters instead of constantly changing. Yeah. Um, and there's also like I wish, I wish you could stick to one point of view per chapter. Um, and and Ed Greenwood doesn't write that way, right? There, no, are, there you hit every point of view at least once Basically, per this chapter. Book, this book would probably be I've been well served to do the approach that the Song of Ice and Fire, the Game of Thrones series does, where each chapter is the point of view of one of the characters. Yeah. And, you're- well, and I, think yeah. I, I think I prefer that system much better anyway, and, and I don't know that, I, that I've ever had a situation where I, um, not doing that seemed better to me than doing that. Because, yeah, sometimes within the chapter you're following someone and then suddenly you're skipping someone, but it's not clear right then and there who you changed to, and I was like, okay, you, that would turn me off sometimes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I guess we've hit that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that point hard. 
any other thoughts about the book? We've talked for a little more than a half an hour, and we still have an interview to add in, so we don't have to go uh, too long on our discussion. And since there's just two of us, we can make it short and sweet. But um, anything else you thought was worth noting? None, not that I can think of. I mean, I think I hit, we hit all the points I wanted to talk about. So, um, where do we think it's going next? Do we think, or do we think it even particularly matters? Because it seems to me that ever since the Herald, like the books are fairly self-contained, right? They don't necessarily yeah. bleed into each other. No, they. You just. It doesn't seem to be a continuation. It's. It, I mean, if you know. For the most nowadays seems to film and so it seems oh you can grab that you get a complete story mm-hmm. with the characters that you know that, that you know with possibly other ones that you might have learned beforehand or new characters so we've had a murder mystery we've had plenty of like rollicking epic adventure we've had uh, political intrigue what's the next genre going to be Comedy? I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a comedy. That would, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> Somehow I suspect if Ed Greenwood was writing a comedy, it would get really raunchy really fast. Uh, yeah, that might not be a, a good appropriate thing yeah. for <laughs> Brian Gum's book. But, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, I- uh, let's see. We've had we've had the through the murder mystery. We kind of have the crime procedural. Maybe we'll have a lawyer drama next. There, there's that. <laughs> uh. All right. Yeah. Well, if that's all we have to say, then let's go ahead and wrap up our discussion, and we'll throw it to me talking to Ed Greenwood about his book uh, Death Masks. So take it away, me. All right, and I am here now with author of the book, uh, Death, Ma- Death Masks, Ed Greenwood, and, and founder, grandfather of the Forgotten Realms. Welcome back to the show, sir. Ah, thank you. Nice to be here, it's as al- always. It's always <laughs> good to have you on, uh, and, and we try to get you on as much as, as is feasible and reasonable for the, the many various things going on in your life. So, yes, have me on. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so we're talking about death masks uh, today, and, and I, I like to start off with the same question I usually start off with when I talk to authors about their books: uh, being as concrete or esoteric as you want to be. Uh, what is death masks about? Death masks is about life in Waterdeep right now in Realms time, and. It's a slice of life for a whole bunch of people in Waterdeep and who are thrown into conflict and they get to run around and be themselves under pressure. And I get to show you as much of Waterdeep as I can um, over their shoulders and through their eyes as they rush madly along doing whatever action-packed things they're doing. Um, Because I somehow think I won't be allowed to write um, a, a Proust-style novel, or Proust if you prefer, um, where I wander leisurely through Waterdeep, going to random people and telling you how they picked their teeth and how they, they shaved that morning and all the rest of it. Um, I, I think I'm gonna, always going to have a, an action sequence. So in this case, it's um, somebody seems to be killing the mass lords of Waterdeep. That's the driver for the novel. Mm-hmm. And... It, what we're also seeing is what it's like to be the open lord and Laryl, 
Laryl Silverhand is the Open Lord mm -hmm. at the moment, and what it's like to be Open Lord of Waterdeep, which is sort of like being the whipping boy for everybody, mm -hmm. as well as the figurehead, uh, and what happens when somebody who has power, or has had great power as a chosen and has less now, um, is trying to serve the city and not be the football of the mask lords and she is up against some mask lords who very much want her to be a football mm -hmm. and at the same time um it looks increasingly as the novel unfolds that somebody's trying to stack the deck the ranks of the mask lords by assassinating mask lords mm -hmm. and i guess for for an american listening to this uh Conceive of it as if you could handpick successors without the inconvenience of an election to Congress and the Senate. Hmm. How would the country react if suddenly all sorts of congressmen and senators started getting messily murdered and then replacements rushed in? Mm -hmm. Some of you would, you know, go on about your lives because you don't care. And others of you would get very, very, very concerned as in who's doing this and what are we going to end up with? And mm -hmm. that's sort of the, the, the nugget that gets all this going. But it's really looking at people from all walks of life, including visitors to Waterdeep, you know, adventurers who are visiting. And Mert, the moneylender, mm -hmm. who was a lord of Waterdeep a century before and has come back and... He comes back and discovers that Laryl is living in his house because it's <laughs> everybody's assumed that he's dead, you know. And the new lords are going, who's this old folk? And he's going, oh, I, I'm the senior lord. And they're going, you're not a lord. Sure I am. You know, and then there's that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Mert and Elminster are sort of hanging around assisting Laryl, who at times in the novel I'm sure would much rather she didn't have them around assisting her, and at other times is thanks her lucky stars, as in Mistra, um, that they're there. And that's what the, the, the sort of impetus of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's got a lot of different sort of um, explorations going on there, right? I mean, you get the, the element of uh, where Mert is, is finding a place in, the, in a society where he used to be prominent, and now he finds that things have changed and moved on without him. Uh, Laryl and Elminster are, bo are both dealing with the the change of having been once mighty and powerful chosen and, and still being chosen but less mighty and powerful. Um, and, but it, and then also the Laryl simultaneously dealing with being that open lord figurehead slash kicking post, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, we also get to see what it's like to be a noble. And mm -hmm. um, there's various reactions because we see various nobles. Um, we see a bunch of the old, um, what I would call the overblown, um, I'm, I'm going to do the, the upper class twit thing here, you know, oh, <laughs> oh I see plover's eggs, oh my goodness me, ah, ah. you know, that sort of stuff. Um, somebody who is um, put on all the trappings of being noble and is above everything until the world slaps them in the face and mm -hmm. they can't, they can't any longer pretend that they are above the world as a, as opposed to being part of it. And we're also seeing young, ambitious nobles who are frustrated beyond belief by the role they've been thrust into, notably uh, one particular young female noble 
who is literally sneaking out to do things. Her parents mm-hmm. wouldn't want her to do this, but she doesn't want to do what her parents want her to do either. And in that case, it's an arranged marriage and behaving properly and, you know, being a fitting daughter. And she is like bored to tears and wants to make her own life. And at the same time, she also wants to change things, shake things up. Right. And this is the same noble who decides to to do that by being a a full-throated follower of Asmodeus and joining the cult. Yes. Okay, yeah. And and just to clarify, we're assuming in this episode that, that if people are listening, they're okay being spoiled or they've already read the book. So. Oh, good. Because, yes. yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I did in um, – I, I have always done this in my Realms novels, but it's, it's been informal. And increasingly um, in recent years with re- more recent books, um, notably beginning with The Spell Plague, because that was such a planned thing, you know. The, the what was mm-hmm. the, what was in the books was planned overall. Mm-hmm. In order for the books to dovetail, um, everything had to be planned. Well, in in all of my realms novels, I have in effect um, ticked off little boxes on a shopping list of things that um, the game people, whoever they are, be they at TSR, be, be they now at, at Wizards of the Coast, would like to be in the book. Mm-hmm. To support future things, to Easter eggs, um, to go along with something. Um, in this case, there's a particular um, lord, um, Omen Drawn from Acquisitions Incorporated. Yeah, who it's one of the things I was going to talk about it is the level of effort you went into in this book in order to really embrace this concept of the shared world. Like every fifth edition storyline makes an appearance, including Acquisitions Incorporated. Yes, and. and um, uh, giants get a nod. Mm-hmm. A particular beholder gets a brief nod. Um, these are all things that I the, was the, asked. The to dragon put in attacks there. from Tyranny of Dragons is, is yes. mentioned. Oh yeah, yeah, everything's in there. Yeah, uh, and, no, and, yeah. I mean, I mean, you could even argue um, that a certain wizard of Greyhawk um, has an appearance that I I'm thinking was maybe an homage to to that same wizard's appearance in the Ravenloft adventure. Uh, yeah, I was asked to put him in specifically uh-huh. because um, which that, uh, like, which on one hand like feels a little weird because there's just this random archmage of Greyhawk wandering around doing things and causing trouble. Um, on the other hand, for somebody who who knows that connection to Ravenloft, is like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know. Hmm. Well, he. He has to um, be nursed back to sanity, right? And and the process has to begin. So we were showing the process beginning, mm. and he also has a minder, and the minder has to be someone who can handle him. And it also gave me a reason to yank a certain character off stage and out of the driver's seat from time to time at random. Uh, right. inconvenient intervals mm-hmm. so other people get to be heroes and do their stuff without always having the old mage around to step in and mm-hmm. um, save the day and and so yeah all of that stuff that's in there everything all these little um, grace notes are there in order to knit everything together and I love doing that mm-hmm. so the, the fact that there was a, a shopping list of things to do was just marvelous I that yeah. pleased me no end because it, it, you see, Waterdeep is like any large real-world city: New York, 
London, Rome, Chicago, any large city that you've been part of, it's not tidy. There's tons of stuff going on at all times and all sorts of people are doing all sorts of things and some people are living quite different lives than other people and both of them consider themselves staunch citizens of the city mm -hmm. or um, visitors who are fans of the city and yet to, to each of them, the city is something very different because of the lives they lead and I wanted to show all of that. I also wanted to set up a whole bunch of things and leave untidy loose ends we have some villains who survive this. Um, you, you alluded earlier to Asmodeus and so on. We, mm -hmm. we have some villains who survive, and what will they do next? You know, and and that's fine. We're going to leave all sorts of people in play. And at the same time, I'm I'm walking the tightrope dance of not horning in on things that are directly in an adventurer's league adventure. Right. This is this is supposed to sort of um, embroider and bolster and perhaps spawn future adventures or, or have elements or threads that can be plucked out of it into future adventures without ruining the ones that are going on right now. Right. So does there is there a plan to to take some like you just mentioned that there were some villains who survived? Is mm. the plan then for that story to continue in in near future books um, or? It's just a thread that's out there, and maybe something will happen, and you don't know where, and you don't know when. Because like, there's it's been more... there's been a lot of story villains like that. Like after uh, Spellstorm, like I'm like, oh, I hope we get to hear more about what what's going on with Manishun because that was kind of a neat element, right? But of course, this book he he makes no appearance. So. No, no, I, I I do throw a lot of things out there, and um, of the two um, uh, choices you gave, it's more like the latter. We don't know where, and we don't know when. We don't know where and we don't know when right now, but that doesn't mean you won't see any of these people later. I have plans. Mm -hmm. um, the, the next thing I probably do in terms of realms fiction will be a, a much shorter thing at DM's Guild. Um, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get to see what Mert does next oh, Okay. And on a mission. So he, he will leave Waterdeep behind on a mission and we'll get to see it, it's like a little tale it's mm -hmm. not a it's not a novel a short story or novella yeah or whatever. yeah yeah a, a longish short story mm -hmm. um and where we'll go from there the i'm i'm still i'm, I'm in talks mm -hmm. and and i don't mean big legal talks i don't mean it like negotiations i mean uh, we talk creatively about you know what we what should we do next what should we spotlight next because one of the things that you everybody has noticed during the last little while is instead of having like three thousand realms novels a year, <laughs> the the number of, of realms fiction things that are hitting us are drawing down. Mm -hmm. So therefore, as they draw down, we have to decide: okay, what do we do? Mm -hmm. um, who gets the and and th that's something um, that anybody who's working on a game line of any sort that, that is an IP as opposed to um, another deck of cards, you know, mm -hmm. to cook, go with a game. So we're moving away from a board game or a card game into a, a game that has a, a story or mm -hmm. stories behind it. Um, anything you spotlight pulls the stories in that direction, unless you can spotlight five things at once and deliberately pull them apart and say, you can have this or you can have this, you can have this. You know, um, for instance, if, if we could write a a novel that concentrated on each of the factions that's 
promoted and active in the realms right now, the Zentra and the Lord's Alliance, the Emerald Enclave, etc., um, then we then we wouldn't be pulling it in any one direction if, if all of those books came out at once. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, then inevitably we're pulling the focus, the spotlight. It's, it's as if there's a whole bunch of people on stage and they're all doing something interesting, but there's only one spotlight. Mm-hmm. If you drag the spotlight to this this person or that person, you have of necessity neglect the others. And then the decision is, okay, what do we show? Because that sort of sets the tone for this little while. And there are so, because the realms is so large and so detailed and has been going for so long, there are so many loose ends that people say, hey, what about Chandral? You know, what about Jarl Axel? What about, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that everybody's got somebody they want to look in on again or a place. Hey, you haven't been back to Cormier since, you know. Or, yeah, we got to get some hey, more authors right and then we can get those things figured out, right? Uh, well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and yeah, um, we are we are dancing around those problems at the moment. Mm-hmm. But um, from my point of view, um, I have a whole bunch of things in mind for what those characters will do next. But of course, I don't have the only say in it. Right. They could be prime movers in all sorts of adventures. We could mm-hmm. do things with them. Right. You know, so- and and what we're going to do—that's something that you know. Again, we we have these little conversations somebody comes up with a cool idea and then you never know what's going to sneak its way into i mean there are certain things like volo's guide to monsters you can be fairly certain with its release date that it's sort of set right now mm-hmm. <laughs> but you never know for the other things and and if you aren't on staff at wizards you know increasingly less about what's about to appear as opposed to the sort of wonky old way and early gen cons where if you attended the right seminar somebody high up in the company would spill the beans about mm-hmm. everything that was in a product and you just go uh-huh uh-huh, uh-huh. you know <laughs> things are slightly different now so and then i ruined um, it by showing up with microphones to all those seminars yeah well you, know, <laughs> you, you see you had to learn to carve your microphone to look like a staff yeah there you go <laughs> and then go in wizard's costume you know yeah <laughs> so so you're talking about um, different directions that the stories could go and what have you. One of the things that we noticed in our in our discussion of this book <clears throat> is that there's been a tendency in the last two, three Elminster books, uh, and, and we I, I call them Elminster books loosely, right? Because I would argue that Laryl was more a major character than Elminster in, in the most recent one, for example. I would agree, um, yes. Right. Um, but f- for the most part, you seem to be very interested in exploring um, different types of the murder mystery genre, right? Uh, between Spellstorm, which was more like locked-in-a-house murder mystery, and uh, yes. and this one, which is more political intrigue. Arguably, the one before Spellstorm was a little bit of that as well, only in Cormier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with a little more political intrigue. Is that kind of a genre that you're kind of just more interested in exploring right now compared to like the high fantasy epics that, that Elminster has been involved in in the past as well? Um, yeah, I don't mean that this was the only thing I was interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to do was get away from some of the high fantasy epics mm-hmm. because they involve spell hurling. And that was the very thing that um, we wanted to de-emphasize more. Okay. So that there's... Um, arguably, you can say that... that uh, 
in a James Bond movie, if something flags, you can always throw in an explosion in a chase scene. Mm-hmm. And something hangs in the balance, as in you have to chase because the things are going to blow up. you got to do it now. And in the same way, you can always start hurling fireballs or have a spell duel, you know, and, and um, up the action. Or in, drop in a, a building thing. on somebody. Or drop a building on somebody. Yeah. <laughs> or have a dragon flying out of the sky or whatever. And right. at the same time, those bug me because I never, ever get to do them the way I'd like to. Like, if we're going to have a spell duel, I want to be able to set it up and have everybody realize what the consequences are and then have the duel. And we never seem to do it that way. And, yes, one of the things I wanted to do was um, put Elminster into in various genres of murder mysteries. I mean, yeah, the, the uh, Spellstorm is, is like a country house mm-hmm. murder mystery, which is a larger... Um, classier variant of the locked room mystery the whole point of um this sort of um um murder mystery is you can't get in and you can't get out so the murderer has to be somebody in the house with us right and you can you know put all sorts of variants on that but the reader knows or is fairly fairly um um, suspects fairly strongly that this isn't going to be one of those things where the murderer could be anybody because people can bamf in and out using their magic. No, that can't happen here. Whereas what we do in Death Masks is you're in the middle of a giant city it's full of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. The murderer could be anyone. And of course that turns the whole thing on its head. What if you are going to work in a large city, a large modern city, and you come across a body and someone sees you discover the body and chuckles and you whirl around to see who it is and they're gone and you realize I'm in the middle of a crowded city mm-hmm. somebody knows that I found this body somebody is going to try and pin this on me or whatever and I don't know who they are they could be anywhere they're lurking watching me they could be anybody they could be anywhere I have no idea who who did this killing and they, they could be right beside me in this crowded, you know, if it's, if you're commuting in the morning, there's tons of crowds of people around, it could be any of them. Right. And, and you, you can't tell, you know, and it's that, it's that different feeling. And so it wasn't so much that I wanted to tell a good mystery or what a sort of mystery reader aficionado would say was a, a fair mystery with all the clues given and so right. on. No, it was more like I want to tell the sort of story where people under stress have to interact with each other, have to talk to each other about things that matter to them when they're upset, not just, you know, prithee, good my lord, varlet, you know, draw thy mm-hmm. sword, Ugh! you know, and, and instead of immediate confrontation, it's like we, we have to deal with things, we have to try and figure things out, and therefore we have to talk to each other, and therefore it's more interesting, there's more engagement. The difference between a dungeon crawl, hack the monster, role-playing session and uh, intrigue we have to talk to people and we don't know the ranks and capabilities of all these people maybe they can blow us away so we have to sort of cautiously proceed and try and find out which can be fascinating Mm role-playing well i want to do that sort of thing in a novel arguably you mentioned that 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 this doesn't it as a necessarily like a true fair mystery right and and one of the things that um that my co-host mentioned when we were discussing it is that 
excuse me, there's even an element in this book where, like, the main characters who are investigating the mystery um, mm-hmm. don't even really solve the mystery, right? <laughs> the the the, no. villain, the villains just eventually reveal themselves. They could have just bided their time, and eventually the mystery would have solved itself. Right. And the same thing in Spellstorm. We launch into a mystery, mm-hmm. and then then a wild, wild-eyed action story breaks out mm-hmm. halfway through. Right. And people stop detecting and start racing and chasing and trying to kill each other. Right. Um, and that, that, was, that was because the other part of me said, it's not fair to Realms readers if the book hasn't been sold to them as a mystery. Mm. And in neither case did the catalog copy say, hey... You know, would you like to solve a maroon mystery with Elminster at your side? You know, which would be, okay, now I'm writing a different book. Okay. But, I mean, in neither case w- was that sort of what it was pitched as to the, to, the, to the reader. So, therefore, I feel an incumbent upon me to, unless I'm going to do a real mystery, mm-hmm. all gussied up, the sort of mystery I could say, okay, mystery fans, you know, is this a new modern mystery classic? You know, I played really fair with the reader. All the clues are there. You know, no, I don't want to do that. I also mm-hmm. want to have some swordplay. I want to have some witty repartee. Mm-hmm. I want to have some pratfall comedy because people expect that in a realms book mm-hmm. with my name on it. And why not? Yeah, I mean, uh, to, uh, to to critique a little bit. Sometimes it's it, it would be nice. Like there's an element of when when that happens uh, and the the heroes aren't the ones solving the mystery necessarily. That that the story is happening to them rather than them driving the story. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's deliberate on my part because I keep trying to drive home the everybody's shades of gray. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have shining white heroes and dastardly black villains. And the heroes always have to win. And the heroes mm-hmm. have to always be smarter and always outwit. And do the absolutely improbable um, pull off the quest. You know, destroy the one ring or whatever it is. Sure. Against all odds when you go, they can't possibly win. But you know they're going to because they're the good guys. Um, occasionally I like to things have things just happen. Well, they stand there with their mouths open going, well, the, the, one of the great moments in, in um, the, the movie Excalibur, you know, where Merlin says, oh, I didn't foresee this, you know, and immediately it shifts the whole movie because you go, oh, oh my goodness. So anything can happen now, eh? You know, <laughs> and, and I want it, uh, occasionally I want things to just happen. Mm-hmm. And because they do in real life, and occasionally I want things to happen because somebody blunders into something and it happens despite their best laid plans. And the the heroes or the good guys haven't gotten around to solving the mystery or getting to the bottom of things. And of course, in in the case of Death Masks, they are racing against time or racing against the lives left. Of the lords, I, I was having fun when writing it. I actually mm-hmm. um, taped to the side of my large Mac computer I was writing it on. I, I taped a roster of all the lords, and y- if you carefully read between the lines and pull the book apart, you'll note that there are about five or six lords I never name. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is deliberate to give dungeon masters the chance to have whoever they want to be a lord in their campaign, and I haven't nailed down the identity of every last lord. That's just unfair. I'm like, and I don't need to. But mm-hmm. there is a part of the book when you when you take away the people who have been murdered and you don't count the new ones that have been shoved in as replacements, where we're down to about seven or eight lords. You know, they're almost wiped out most mm-hmm. of the sitting masked lords. Now, that, that doesn't mean a, a person in the streets in Waterdeep might realize this, because, right. of course, they never see all the lords together, and they're masked most of the time, mm-hmm. except for the open lord, who is the spokesperson. Um, but I wanted it to be clear to the reader, as they followed the unfolding action, that Laryl and the senior officers, you know, in the... In the uh, the Waterdeep Watch and, and the, the courtiers and the bureaucrats are becoming increasingly alarmed that there's going to be nobody left. Hmm. And then and, the, that brings in this interesting uh, dynamic of, of sort of class discussion, nobility versus the guild masters and all of that, right? Oh, sure. And actually, that's some of the bits that we had to edit out so that the book wouldn't become longer and longer. I had more stuff with various guild masters beginning to realize what's happening and doing more to put their candidates in amongst the new lords. Uh-huh. And of course, what they don't realize is that somebody is ruthlessly selecting the right. new lords, and anybody else who tries to horn in is likely to have a very short life indeed. Right. But they're seeing this as their opportunity. Oh, the nobles have always worked hand in gloves with these. I bet you half these nobles are, are mass lords anyway. You know, this is our chance. Mm-hmm. You know. And and I actually had a little bit that that ended up on the cutting room floor of a bunch of shopkeepers are going to nominate the most gregarious shopkeeper who is also uh, amongst them on their street who is also a pain in the ass to all of them because he won't shut up about anything. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, good. And so that, put him that, into a make him be a lord. You know. There you go. Yeah. So that brings up an uh, like you. It sounds like you wanted to have even more perspectives, and and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of interest and value in that. Um, but it also makes stories harder to follow. So I'm curious what your sort of mentality is, is to how to decide how many perspectives to have in, in a story, right? Like single perspective stories are much easier to follow for the reader. Uh, but then we never get to find out what's going on for, with everybody else. So, so what's the sure. balance? Well, here's the thing. There are people, Edward Rutherford, for example, who've had, you know, best-selling careers, Serum and all those other books he's written, um, where the place is the central character and there's a cast of hundreds within the pages of the book and we move through time, through generations and sometimes even centuries staying, you know, looking at London or wherever wherever it is. Um, and therefore, I don't think you can have too large a cast. However, you can have too large a cast for what people are expecting right. in a book. And this has actually been something that I have fought with, uh, fought with um, editors um, over regarding the realms from my first book. Spellfire was three times as long as the, as the one you got to see. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was chopped out. Um, Peter Archer, who was the managing editor of the book department for the longest time, would say to me, Ed, you're, you're, th- this latest book is too shrubby. 
meaning <laughs> like a shrub, it's growing too many branches. You need to prune, yeah. You need to prune. And I go, why? Because I would, I would point out the, the uh, Julian May's um, award-winning and smash hit Pleiadian Exile, which had a cast of hundreds. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, yeah, but that's not the story we want to tell here. We want to focus in on, and I'd say, why do we want to focus in? Well, well, but that's what, yeah, yeah, but if that's all we give them, that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's like, you, they may think it's a supermarket, but you've decided it's a chocolate store, and all you're going to give them is chocolate. And then you turn around and say, but you see, all they want is chocolate. And I would argue, you've never given them anything but chocolate. So how do you know that? You know, if those empty shelves over there that aren't chocolate, if they were full of broccoli maybe they buy broccoli maybe they come in here looking for broccoli maybe they've stopped bothering to come in here looking for broccoli because all they know they're going to mm-hmm. get is chocolate mm-hmm. and 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 we'd, we'd have well I, I mean i'm i'm using metaphors but i mean we would have those discussions and i would always be trying to put more in because i was trying to set up more things and i was trying to have easter eggs for other people's books because i think of the realms as this vast untidy living place and with great justification on their side, various editors are saying, you know, Ed, I'd actually like to have a nice tidy story inside. <laughs> there is <laughs> there know, is value as a re- there, as a reader. There's value in a nice tidy story, <laughs> especially yeah, when I only get one a year. I can feel good about. It, yeah, you know? exactly. So we would we would, um, in a friendly way, we'd battle back and forth mm-hmm. in each book, and and it would sort of be like, okay, you've delivered this draft. Can we lose these five chapters because it's a shrub or it's a branch, the shrub that would do better in another book, Mm. you know, turn it into a bunch of short stories and we'll shove it on the website because I don't think it belongs in this book. And I'd say, but it does because, and sometimes I would win the argument because I'd say, look, I'm setting something up for another book in the future. Oh, okay. Uh, Sell me on that. You know, okay. And then we'd come to a meeting. Well, could it just be a hint or a mention? Or could it be one scene? Or could it be two characters at this feast rather than five chapters? And we would talk back and forth. And and there is no right answer in this. Right. But there is a, a, a right answer for this project at this time. And, of course, it's always going to be, in, a, in the end, the publisher who wins these because, hey <laughs> – this is the price point. This is the word count, the, the page count for the book. This is what we expect it to be about. This is what its cover painting is. This is what the book is. And you don't want to... Uh, the, the, the cardinal sin for both of us is the reader thought they were getting a book on cheese and you gave them a book on chocolate mm-hmm. or vice versa. So in the end, I'm always having to scale back what I would love to do and yes, I would love to have cast of hundreds. I would love to have four or five subplots go on, have two of them dangling unfinished, and literally dangling, leave the characters dangling over the edge of a cliff, but satisfying resolution to the main story. Uh-huh. And sometimes that isn't possible. Right. Sometimes it isn't possible within the word, word count or the time you're given, and sometimes it, the story just gets out of the hands of the writer. Now, what I tried to do here was bring the main story to a satisfying resolution that isn't it isn't finished mm-hmm. it finishes this threat to the lords um, it doesn't 
take care of most of the root causes or the root problems that Lero's going to have to deal with. But Lero, throughout the book, without ever having a scene in which I point point at her and shout as the as the author, Lero moves from very much on probation to she's the true leader of the mm-hmm. thing. In part because all the lords that that were putting her on probation, some of whom were part of this um, cabal that was trying to get rid of her, are gone, are dead. Right. And and but a lot of the replacements who are obviously picked to be part of the cabal going forward, they get a taste of working with her and watch all the bloodshed on all sides, and they gravitate gravitate towards the strong leader because she's being a strong leader without being a strong arm, even even she, in somebody else's body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, but I mean, she is. She gives them. Uh, what we modern people would say more of a democratic say in things without railroading them and what we see time and time again when groups of lords meet in private with her is they're trying to railroad her into railroading the rest of the lords right it, it's it's the sort of before congress meets this little this little cabal will fix things so this vote is taken and this is said at this time so we sort of sway them this and we get our own way Right. And, you know, in some ways, the tidy old boys club can be a very effective and efficient way of governing. It isn't very democratic. Now, the Lords is not a democracy. Right. Just as, you know, the United States is not a democracy, it's a republic. They like to throw the words freedom and democracy around, but no, it's a republic. Yeah, it, it's, it's, there is this governing elite. You know, you're not voting for the president, you're voting for the College of Electors. You know, there's a there's a who yeah, at the beginning were these wealthy landowners. No, right. it is a, a voting, and and we've got the same sort of thing going on here. But the other thing that's going on with a wholesale <laughs> body count amongst the lords, <laughs> um, there is room for how Waterdeep is governed to sh- literally shift and change under people's feet, with some of the people in town not even realizing it. You know, they, if you're working on the docks, working hard, or in a, a shopkeeper, and you're just hearing the rumors, you don't realize. I mean, you realize lords are dropping like flies, but you may not realize that there's any sort of sinister thing behind it, other than there's some madman running around killing all the lords. Right. Or maybe it's somebody bringing them all to justice because we all know they're corrupt, um, rapists, murderers, fill in the blank. You know, maybe they're finally getting theirs, but you may not realize that somebody's trying to change the government. Hmm. And, and and again, as I said earlier about about the the way we tell stories, there is no right or wrong answer here. It's just to explore how people react to it and handle it. Um, real life isn't tidy. Life in Waterdeep, the the fictional Waterdeep, I don't want it to be tidy either. I want the reader to feel occasional moments of satisfaction where somebody gets theirs. Or somebody manages to achieve something, mm-hmm. or somebody has that shining moment where they they win, or they they get to be the hero. But it's a little passing thing. It's part of the the big unfolding tapestry. I do not want to have, have one of those books where you know the the heavens part and the golden light shines down, and this booming voice says, "The end," because you've done it. You know, because I don't want anything to end. I want it to be an ongoing 
rolling, vigorous, living place. Um, I would love it if we could spin 20 novels off this. Sure. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But You need more authors, but yeah. Yeah, we, yeah but I, I'd like the feeling at the end of the book is, yeah, what happens next? Oh, this could be... Because some people who read this are not just going to be reading it as readers. They're going to be gamers. And it's like, okay, now I want to put water deep into my campaign and I can draw on all this. And I want that level of energy and the unfinished business and the untidiness to be there. Because that makes it more useful to gamers. And Wizards of the Coast has a core team now of some really imaginative designers, really solid guys. Um, Chris Perkins, um, Jeremy Crawford, Mike Merrills. These guys, um, they really know their stuff. And they're old veterans working there too, like Stan. I mean, they these guys know their stuff. They know D&D through and through. And... I know that they can pick up and run with things. So I want to leave them with things to pick up and run with. Okay, sure. And and Sean Merwin and all the people who are writing stuff for the Adventurers League, I want them to have little things that they can hang an adventure off or wait, wait a minute, we can use this or wouldn't it be cool if, you know, and I want just just as I want individual dungeon masters and and role players players who read this book to go, hey, what if, you know, I, I want, you know, it, it, the book has to give us something that's going to go on. Uh, Tolkien was very good at this. He said, uh, don't tell the whole story. Leave them wanting more. Mm-hmm. Because it will, it, it for one thing, it makes the world seem more alive. And for another thing, it makes the book seem better because it, it left, it left, um, you everything moving alive proceeding as opposed to the end the curtain came down we turned the lights off and some old guy with a broom came out and started you know brooming up the mess mm-hmm. so so speaking of of threads that you put out there that that can pop up in other places uh volo who has a book com- who has a book coming out uh leads to the question of um do any of your characters stay dead in the spell plague? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, actually, um, there is an unpublished column, web column, that Wizards has been sitting on for five years now, four years mm-hmm. now, that was what happened to Volo. Oh, yeah? You know, that explained everything. Um, so it, it, it was decided early on that Volo was, was going to pull through the spell plague. And and how was was laid out and mm-hmm. and I have plans for Volo, um, as well as Volo's Guide to Monsters and and um, uh, so does Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see a particular book that I won't say anything more about, other than I didn't write it, um, and it has a mind flare on the cover. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that can I call them that? Yes, I can call them that. We could. <laughs> So that um, uh, we, we will be seeing more of Volo. And that was always the intention. Uh, because the thing about Volo is he's like Baron Munchausen or any of these fictional characters, um, Til Ilgenspiel and all these other. They're, they're annoying as heck and you can never quite kill them off. They keep popping up like a bad penny. You know, there's, there's, you cannot get rid of them. 
you can knock it's like whack-a-mole you whack them <laughs> they pop up somewhere else mm -hmm. and that was always um the secret to volo's irritating charm <laughs> if there is any <laughs> and, and and he is a totally unreliable biased narrator um I, I have been gleefully writing bitchy restaurant reviews that Volo is writing <laughs> in the pen of Volo um, for the, the last few weeks, having fun. Um, Volo very much rides again. And he is, if, if he died, it would be necessary to um, bring, a, bring on board his daughter or granddaughter because it's time to give the ladies a chance, you know, to be irritating and opinionated and like Volo has been. <laughs> but, but I mean, um, we, Volo is pulling through. There are a lot of people who did not make it through the spell plague, but that's the thing. We notice and comment on the ones that did and the surprisingly high number of ones that did right. because <laughs> they're still around. We don't talk about the thousands that just are not spoken of again. Well, in fairness, you know the name of every every guard and war wizard in Cormier, right? So, yeah. so you you know of many who didn't survive. But it seems like most of your sort of classic characters, um, like I didn't necessarily expect Volo or Mert to necessarily pull through, let alone both. You know? mm. And even when you've killed um, certain chosen of Mistra, they've sort of continued being characters in the form of weave ghosts. Well, yes, and and that was set up from the beginning, unless. You die in a certain way. That's the way you are going to go on. Is that Unless just for the we... seven sisters, or all chosen? No. Uh, it, well, it's for it's for the seven sisters in particular because remember they're part Mistra, right? Because she she in effect birthed them. Um, but if the chosen are still useful to Mistra, and if they still want to be around, there are some who chose to die. Mm -hmm. uh, Alovan, for instance, uh, of RD, um, who just, they were sick of it. Right. And Mr. Respected that. But there are others she keeps around because they're useful and because they have unfinished business. Salune was a perfect example of that. Right. Became a spectral harpist. And that, you know, that's that's back in second edition that that was set up. Right. And all of her servitors. Yeah, that, but it isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. Okay. Um, it, it In the same way that Chandral dies, and she's there as a voice and a presence from time to time in Narn's life. She isn't there as his wife. He can put her as, right. his arms around her and share his life with her. She's gone, you know. Um, but yeah, the, there are. It's not every chosen by any means. It sure. is most of the seven, um, because uh, they got stuff the to other do. Thing, yeah, and the other <laughs> thing is, um, all of the chosen hold part of her power. Right, her her divine fire, and she loses it if they, um, if they die and pass away and are not absorbed into the weave. Mm -hmm. um, she loses it for good. Loses so, some of her power. So connecting some of those, two of those themes, and and I didn't mean for this last question to sort of drag on, um, but let's talk about chosen briefly. Mm -hmm. um, where and, and the area wherein I think the, con the the conversation about chosen intersects with Volo. Uh, do we? What is our current like status of of chosen? What, how many are there, and do we know of them? And which ones do we know of or suspect? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's a mystery. No, no. Okay, um, 
one of the things that happened over th- over time, as I as I initially conceived of the realms pre TSR, pre game, only Mistra had chosen. Okay. Because Mistra would otherwise be too powerful in mm-hmm. this high magic world as the goddess of magic. So in order to limit her power, and I was very nebulous about whether she did it herself or whether there was AO or somebody above her, I, you know, doing it to her. Um, but the cosmic balance that some of her divine power would be vested in mortals whom she could call on, but she couldn't compel. Right. Like they could, they could say, no, I'm not going to help you. No, you're doing the wrong thing. You're being bad. I will not relinquish or share my power with you. I will stand against you. You know, and that's what the chosen were for. And only Mistra had chosen. Inevitably, when the realms started being published, other people wanted to have chosen of other deities. And it it came to mean sort of champion. Mm-hmm. And some chosen had different powers, but they were very much, um, well, it was an arms race. And of course, we poked fun at that by the time of the Sundering. The Sundering, yeah. Yeah. Um, at, our, at our sort of secret summit meetings, we were sitting around a table uh, in, in the Wizards of the Coast offices doing um, um, parodies of, of Oprah. You are chosen. You get a chosen. You, and get, you chosen, get a chosen. You get chosen. Everybody yeah. gets a, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and that's deliberately what you saw in, in the, the middle books of The Sundering. Um, Aaron showed you, in effect, a, a, a camp, mm-hmm. um, a refugee camp full of chosen, mm-hmm. and they're all of different power levels. Most of them very low, but and they're and they're all gonna. Almost all of them are gonna get offed <laughs> as the gods try and gather power by killing the chosen of other gods, and so that they end up more powerful. You know, when when things come back into focus, they will be. In the balance of power among the gods, they will have risen, and the and the the gods whose chosen they slaughtered will have fallen. And the way I see it now is, everybody, every deity, is more distant than in the past. We don't have avatars striding around anymore. If we do, we don't know it because they're they're hiding their lights under bushels. They're not going hi. See my gleaming chin? I am the avatar of, you know, and then, you know, none of that is happening. Um, And all chosen have fewer powers. And the chosen of Mistra, we see here, have fewer powers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you go through Death Masks and you go through the spell fights and so on, and you check it against the fifth edition spells, you realize, wow, everybody's like far down on the power scale. And yeah, would they not still be like powerful wizards? You know, would they not yes. still have their levels of wizard or whatever? Yes, they would. Okay. okay. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is, though, that they are operating under constraints of what Mistra wants As them, told them to do. Yeah. To do. Yeah. So whereas you know, evil snively whiplash wizard there twirling his mustache, there's nothing to stop him cast a meteor swarm. Other than maybe he doesn't have another one up his sleeve and he might not want to blow it now in case he gets hit from behind because he's made lots of enemies but there's nothing to stop him but the chosen he's facing 
may have a little voice in their ear from Mistra saying, you will not meteor swarm anybody today. In the middle of Waterdeep, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because we care about Waterdeep, you know, and, and the difference between the villain and, and you know, the, that, that's the thing. Why is it in so many movies they, they choose to have their punch-ups in the middle of a, a build-up area so they can destroy the maximum amount of stuff with people screaming? Yes, yes, we, we learn to love that in King Kong, but, I mean, uh, surely if there are, are heroes or Godzilla, excuse me, uh, surely if there are heroes, um, they would, the first thing they do is try and take the battle out of town. But, but um, we don't know how many chosen there are. We do know that they are meddling far less, and the deities they serve are using their priesthoods a lot more mm-hmm. and intervening directly a lot less, which, okay. of course, makes mortals and their, their own moral choices you know, adventurers on the ground, your player characters, it brings the, the center of a play and importance back onto them, the spotlight mm-hmm. back onto them, which is, um, I think, one of the um, desires of all designers of 5th edition is to, is to center things back into that. Because if you're a newcomer to the game, the one thing you do not want to uh, be told over and over again is, Oh yes, you're a brand newly minted adventurer, and you don't matter. You're a nobody. Right. Just yeah. I mean, there's certainly the risk of that, right? One of the reasons I've always enjoyed the realms to to play in is because there's room for me to tell my stories. Whereas, like playing in Dragonlands, I always feel like, yeah, but there's major stories going on that kind of suck the air out of the room, you know. And, and I know different people disagree and, and and thoroughly love playing in those settings, right? But that's always been my experience. And that is the danger of any setting that's dominated by one big story. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Middle Earth. Okay, you, you've saved the world. What are you going to do for an encore? Ha! Save it again. Um, if you want to see ID Climax writ large, um, David Eddings, or David and Leigh Eddings, with the Belgariad and the Melorian. You know, the Melorian is, oh, let's do the Belgari- Belgariad over again. You know, <laughs> because you've done told the one big story. From the very beginning which is pre-game, of course. Pre- there were no role-playing games when I when I started writing about the realms. I wanted it to be the land of a thousand thousand stories, right. not the land of one big story. Because as a little kid reading fantasy books, I could tell you right off the top of my head that I could never do the big world hangs in the balance, save the world story better than the people who'd already written it. So what's the point? But I could see the fun of, say, Fritz Leiber's Fafer and Grey Mouser bopping around a fantasy world having endless adventures. I can do that, mm-hmm. and there's room for both of us. And and that's the thing. The realms, there's room because there are so many stories going on, which is, again, makes it untidy, which is, you know, Death Masks is one root story with about 25 minor stories that pass through it. Some of them told some of them just glimpsed some of them unfinished some of them just given a taste of and that's i'm cool with that yeah i really wanted to hear more about what was going on with those cloud giants and so i know I. I, I know i will probably in in the the, the new adventure right but well I, yes that's the thing i i couldn't say more i knew a little bit about what was going into storm giants thunder but um there are other things i didn't know because they hadn't been finalized yet right. and there's some things that i've been told in confidence by chris perkins years earlier and it was like okay 
but this is all I want in in Death Mask. Okay, then that's all that's in Death so Mask. That's all it's get, to yeah. it, it's to it's to make it clear that um, something has gone wrong. Yeah, with the ordaining, everything is and people are I, again. It's 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 the same thing with the gods trying to kill each other's chosen back in Spell Plague to get more power and rearrange all of these giants and the cloud giants. Um, are ambitious. They're the social climbers. Mm -hmm. They're all trying to do stuff and gain stuff because, hey, it looks like this whole hierarchy has been shattered. So, mm -hmm. hey, we're all going to try and grab a, a higher rung. Yeah, but, but I really enjoyed that 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 uh, interaction between the giants and Laro. I, I was really hoping to see more of that. You know, so was I. Yeah. <laughs> but I, when I when I wrote that scene, I was like walking on eggs. Sure. And it was like. Well, maybe I'll when the ordning's done, you can you can come back and do some more giant stuff after it's all shaken out and, and we know how oh, yeah. the canon is, well, right? If it wasn't for the fact that I'm sure that certain people would probably give me grief over this, <laughs> I would love to have a scene when it's all said and done where Laryl has is sitting down to feast with some of these giants and they think they're going to drink her under the table. And... <laughs> She does the, you know, like the Indiana Jones thing, you know. <laughs> I grew up on this stuff, you know. <laughs> right. So did we. Uh, wait a minute. The human is not falling over. Right. How can this be? You know, and I would love to have, a, but you see, I need lots of word count to do that. Because I do figure that if that happens, both parties, their tongues are going to be loosened by the drinks. So they're going to start telling stories. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be there to hear them all, but you well, see, if I go, go, go back to the old anthology days, uh, where every big storyline also had a, a collection of short stories, and you could do that sort of, uh, you know, Shahrazad's tales, right? Where where yes. where it's just them sitting around, and you got a, a collection of short stories that's the, the the two groups telling their their tales. Well, because I don't think I can get the green light to do that right. <laughs> with the realms. That's why I'm doing this tag thing, so that. Other voices can, you know, look at this facet and that facet and spin off and what happens if, you know, mm -hmm. um, to, to bring things back to, uh, say, Marvel Comics in the old days, um, Mighty Thor. And because the, the comic was Mighty Thor and it was his adventures on Earth or his adventures in the Avengers, you never got to see or you very seldom got to see, except in specials like the Asgardian Wars or so on, you didn't get to see what life was like. When they weren't killing each other, when it wasn't Ragnarok, uh, back um, in the land of the gods. You know, did they all sit there feasting from dawn till dusk? How could you know that they were? They had any martial prowess if all they did was feast? Oh, did they feast? They feasted and then fought and done nothing else. Well, the Warriors 3, I want to see more of them. I want to see them do their stuff. And, and, okay, to back away from Thor again, in the same way, there are all these little things sidelines that I would love to pick up on and now we're back to being the story being shrubby you know right. <laughs> and the editor saying yeah 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 but that's not the story we're telling here that's why you just I mean, need to tell more stories if you write two or three books a year you can tell all those stories I agree um, so, so let's, let's do that instead of just more big books let's just do more smaller books and that would be cool um, <laughs> now if, if, if I ran Wizards of the Coast um, You'd write all I, the books you want. <laughs> yeah, and I'd want to do that. And I agree with you. Shorter books, uh, 50,000 worders, 60,000 worders, 80,000 worders. And then those of us who the story runs away with us and we just need more space, 
um, Elaine Cunningham, um, myself, Aaron Evans, we're all notorious for that. Mm. You know, we need more space. We just want to put this one lettuce. So then you have the occasional 120, 140,000 word book because the story warranted it. Or the now, story you, gallop. You know, if you, you know if you had that chance, you would make every book a hundred thousand word book. <laughs> no, no, no. I uh-huh. have learned self discipline. Uh-huh, sure. I have learned. <laughs> yes. No, no. no um, um, well, actually, that 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 that's actually a hilarious thing. Um, Brian Thompson, who who uh, sadly died, I think in two thousand and eight, hmm. uh, who was the head of uh, TSR Books back in the day. And he, by the way, was the, the guy who came up with the idea of you're going to have iconic characters. So I want a book written called I, Strahd. That's yours, Tracy. You know, Ed, you're writing Elminster. Bob, you're writing Drist. I want iconic characters. Mm-hmm. Iconic characters all the time. Sort of thing. <laughs> Which, you know, we fought against ever since. You'll probably notice that certain Drist books are really, really books about other people. Right. Whether it's Wolfgar or whoever, you know. But but anyway, um, because we're all sort of, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> but uh, he said, okay, Ed, write about this and write about that. And when we get to the end of the word count, word count, I'll just yank the floor out from under the character's feet. And they'll go, ah! And I'll put the end. And then you can start writing the next one. <laughs> and <laughs> I actually, no, I, I can't say that here. There is a novel I've just <laughs> written in another setting that, of mine that I did sort of end sort of like that. But anyway, um, because because um, my self-discipline was warring with my need to – the self-discipline to follow the word count was warring with my need to just go on and on with the story to get it to a certain place. Darn, I've run out of words. No, I'm not chopping this out because I need all this other stuff to be there. So let's just chop and end it there. And leave them wanting more, and so and so. Yeah, we could do it that way, you know. Whereas, I, I mean, I, I I concede your point. My druthers would be to have every book just go on and on until I'd said everything. But not only do we kill a lot more trees that way, and we end up with long, shapeless books, and we also end up with books that are late because Eddie was still typing when they ripped the keyboard from his cold, dead hands. And sent it to the printer. <laughs> so yeah, um, but I one of the things I have learned over the years, over all these three hundred odd books, um, is yeah, I have to I have to give in. I can't just go on tweaking things and noodling on and adding more. Eventually, I have to say nope. It's got to go at the door. It's done. So I have learned that yeah, okay, let's come up with a good ending rather than just chopping it and let's let's end this one and we'll come back to it someday. You see, sometimes in, in the past, I've, I've put things in books because I thought I'd never get the chance to come back. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I am literally throwing the kitchen sink in because I may never be here again. I may never come this way again. I may never get the chance. Now, in this case... I was throwing kitchen sinks in because we had a checklist of little cool things to put in. And I'm really pleased with the fact that I've managed to get them all in. And, of course, some of this has been good training I've gotten from those uh, once a year at Gen Con sessions spin a yarn mm-hmm. where the audience would give me all sorts of 
less than tasteful, yeah. <laughs> incongruous, contradictory elements that I had to somehow weave together. Into. Yeah, and and I, I got really good at um, cheating. <laughs> Things like long lists of books and and new, news. Uh, broad broadsheet articles um, to get rid of some of the, the things I couldn't use otherwise because they would take too long. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them were, was a one-liner, a zinger from the audience, but when you look at it, that's an entire plot for a book. Right. And you just don't have time and space to deal with it on stage. But, but yeah, I, I, I have gotten good practice in shoehorning things in, making them, stirring them in so that even if the stew isn't all turned into pablum, it all looks like a stew that you'd want to eat, you know, with these lumps in it. But, you know, and then we, we're done and we can move on. We, we, we have a story there. So, yeah, I would, I would probably be able to use my magical powers to stop at a particular word count. Sure. Getting well, better. Speaking <laughs> of stopping, uh, yes. we scheduled a, a half hour interview with you that has now gone on for over an hour. So, so I think I just want to say, is there any last thing you want to say uh, in this interview? And then I'm going to let you go because I know, much like your word count, when given the opportunity, you will, you will give us uh, all kinds of, of juicy bits to chew on. Oh, yeah. I will talk all night. Yeah, the problem <laughs> is shutting me up. You're, you're quite right. Guilty as charged. Um, I would just say live the dream. There follow you your stories. And if there's something you want more of in anything – whether it's the realms or anything, let people know. This is the wonderful, wonderful thing about you know the social media and our connected world. You have a voice now, so let people know. In the same way that Queen Elizabeth, and I'm speaking now Elizabeth the first, could tell Shakespeare, "I want to see the fat man in love." So we got the Merry Wives of Windsor. You can tell creators, "Hey, I want more of this." Less of that. Do it. Um, maybe you'll get to see more of what you want. There you go. You, yeah. and you definitely won't if you don't tell people. That's right. Yeah. So. We, we can't read your minds. I'm getting better, but, but <laughs> I can't read your minds yet. So, yes, you have to tell me. Tell me. Oh, tell me. Uh, I, 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 it is meat and drink to me when I sit here in my lonely log cabin up here in the howling wilds of Canada. I want to hear from you. So if people want to know more about Ed Greenwood and his work, they should go to officeofedgreenwood.com? Uh, under Librum. Under Librum, okay. O-N-D-E-R-L-I-B-R-U-M. I was say, that's much harder for people to spell. <laughs> yes, yes. O-N-D-E-R-L-I-B-R-U-M.com. No although, underscores, no dots, no nothing. Although if they go to uh, officeofedgreenwood.com, or was it office... OfficeEdGreenwood.com. Uh, it's that's linked over there as well, isn't it? Yeah, they they all sort of they're vaguely all, linked yeah, through they're, the they're, like tentacles. They're no. vaguely um, connected. And and, and it, on Twitter, I'm the Edverse. Yes. Um. And or at the Edverse or what? Excuse me. And and yes, I'm on Facebook too. Mm-hmm. Um. But but yeah, let me know. And and this is a good thing for every uh, writer because. Despite the fact that some of us may not have time to answer you, or um, we certainly don't want to argue uh, with you about things that are already published, because hey, you can't undo it once it's out there. We do want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's meat and drink to us to hear that you loved it, or you hated it, or you loved it except for this bit, um, mm-hmm. or you want more of this. Uh, in some ways, this is a service industry. Um, 
no, no, I, I, I stand with Neil Gaiman when, you know, he said, George R.R. R. Martin is not your, you know, so you can't order your author to write what you want them to, but by all means, let them know what you'd love to see. And then they'll, they'll try to give it to you in a way you don't expect. Yes. And that's yeah. the fun. Yes. Absolutely. Can I do it juggling? Can I do it with <laughs> bells on me? Can I do it with weird things and the beard where you didn't expect it? All that's right. <laughs> And speaking of half the fun, thank you for coming on. It was a it was a great conversation. We're going to let you go here uh, because now the interview is twice as long as the discussion about the book. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. No, no, that's great. We love hearing from you. And I think okay. we're going to hear from you again uh, coming up fairly shortly. You've got some things going on this uh, this late fall, early winter. Um, oh, yes. I, I think we're scheduled to uh, chat with you about that then as well. So, What a great idea. Yeah. Yes, marvelous. I will have more to say then, and uh, you know, in between those two times, I'll be babbling. You just won't hear me. Right. Well, and, and people can go ahead and check out your other books that are are, are uh, discussed on Under Librum uh, as well, right? So because I, there are so few of them. Yes, there's a, there's a handful. Um, yes, <laughs> I, I I just started uh, using my Audible credits to pick up the Hellmoss series. I know I'm like a year or so late on it, but but I'm starting to pick up those now. So. Uh, the the Helmas, there are eight of them out so far, and they are different as chalk and cheese. Yeah, there you go. And and Rob King, who used to be the the editor um, underneath Peter Archer at, at at TSR for the Realms, gave us one of the funniest books that you will ever read: the Incubus Tweets, which is a Helma. I think it's Helmas six, but I okay. could, yeah. Anyway, cool. Yeah, very good. Yeah, well, cool. As always, it's great to hear from you. Yeah, thanks. This is great. And that's the end of this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. Thanks to Noble Knights, our listeners, and thank you for using our affiliate links, D&D Classics and Amazon. I guess D&D Classics, DMs Guild. It's, we're, we, our banner still says D&D Classics because they don't have a DMs Guild banner for the affiliates, so it's weird. Um, but yeah, it, it, hit that <laughs> D&D Classics link and it'll send you to DMs Guild and you can get all the same classics and the new stuff. All right, and if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can reach out to Tracy and uh, tweet her some congratulations for the new baby. She is at Sarah Dark Magic, and she plans to join us for the next episode. You can also find her blog over at sarahdarkmagic.com. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. And Eric is at Eric M. Pack, P-A-Q Pack. Uh, and that's Eric with a C. So E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. That is correct. And you can find our show notes at thetomeshow.com. And that's our thoughts on Death Mass by Ed Greenwood. Keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm off the wall.